City University Television presents... The American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theatre. This seminar, Design. to the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. These are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located in Times Square, 42nd Street, where Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway all meet. This is just one of the programs of the American Theatre Wing, perhaps best known for its Tony Awards, which are given for the achievement of excellence in the theatre. And the the seminar that we have today is very important because the many things that the American Theatre Wing does is to recognize excellence wherever it is. And today's seminar is on design, the people who make the whole thing come alive in the theatre when you sit down, to make it become real to you, the costume designers and the scene designers and the lighters and the directors that comes into pulling the whole thing together. This is a program that was established oh, about uh, 28 years ago, and it's given to not just Broadway, but it reaches into Off-Broadway and Off-Off-Broadway as well. It's the only one that I know that has a monetary stipend, a very small one, but a very large recognition of the talents of these people. And uh, I will have this turned over immediately to Professor Tish Dates, who is a theater critic and professor, as well as one of the jury that picks these winners. Also, Jean Dalrymple, who is a member of the board of directors of the American Theater Way. And today's seminar is also unusual because we have not only the costume designer, but part of the whole picture, the talent that she works with in the theater and in the show. And today's winner of costume design is from Jelly's Last Jam. And the actress that she has with her will show what it is to use the designs and how it turns into the costume that you see when you go on. I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I'm president of the American Theater Wing, and I'm going to turn this over immediately to Professor Dates, who is going to tell us how we get started and what this is all about and how important design is. Thank you. I'm Tish Dace, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to the rest of the panelists today. Um, right over here we have Ralph Lee and next to him Casey Compton representing the Meadowy River Theatre Company. Uh, they have just won the Noteworthy Unusual Effects American Theatre Wing Design Award for 1992 for their design of Witchy Capachi Goes Walking. Uh, this is a, a mythic play about the swampy Cree Indians 
trickster figure, trickster god, and I'm sure that they'll tell us more about it during the discussion. And they've brought along some of their um, puppets that they don't want to call puppets um, <laughs> to show us. Uh, next to them is director Michael Greif. He directed, among other wonderful productions, Pericles at the Joseph Papp yes. New York Shakespeare Festival last year, and he is uh, here discussing the scene design in particular for that show um, by designer John Arnone. Uh, next to Michael Greif is the legendary producer-director Gene Dalrymple. It's always a great thrill to, to co-moderate this design panel with Gene. And on my other side, uh, on the far end, is Brenda Braxton, who is one of the performers from Jelly's Last Jam here in costume, in case you were wondering why the rest of us are not quite as dressed up as she is. And next to Brenda is the wonderful costume designer who, who designed that costume, among many others, for Jelly's Last Jam, Tony Leslie James, uh, who made her Broadway debut with Jelly's Last Jam and has just won our 1992 American Theatre Wing Costume Design Award. And next to Tony is Jules Fisher, also a legend in his own time, the lighting designer and producer, uh, designer of more than 100 shows in New York, winner of, uh, I think at last count, it was six Tony Awards and several of our American Theatre Wing Design Awards in, in lighting, who has just won again for both Jelly's Last Jam and two Shakespearean actors. Welcome all. Uh, I think since we've got Brenda Braxton here in costume, <laughs> clearly upstaging everyone else, that we really should begin with, uh, with Tony talking to us about the, uh, what sort of challenges the costume design for Jelly's Last Jam presented, how she solved them, and how, uh, I guess, in particular, if possible, this particular costume <laughs> of Brenda Braxton's fits in to your design concept. Um, I first designed um, Jelly's Last Jam and. Uh, January of 1990 at the Mark Taper Forum and uh, it was a whole new experience to me because the script was evolving and um, basically it was um, an extraordinary experience because I got to go through a a work in progress with our director George C. Wolf and um, the way this particular costume came out it's um, Brenda is now costume as Too Tight Nora. And in this section of Jelly's Last Jam, we have gone back into Jelly's history from when he was a boy, young Jelly, and his first experience of going into the Seamir, leaving his Creole family, going into the Seamir side, the underbelly of New Orleans life. Uh, when we first designed this costume here in New York, it was with we always went through a process with George of uh, recycling. There had to be something of the new costume. There, with the new costume, there had to be something of the previous costume. And basically, all of these were corsets with the skirts from the opening number, um, the bottom halves of the dress from the opening number attached so we can still see that these were people who were in the jungle in. And it's just that they are showing us, they are going back and giving us this view in Jelly's life, but you never 
see them as different people. But in the fitting room with this particular costume, with our first fitting, which was only in the corset, we loved the corset so much that we said, well, let's forget about that whole concept of going back, <laughs> that of recycling and say that these are people in Buddy Bolden's club. And henceforth, we came with the costume and the bloomers. Uh, with everything as far as working with George, um, and as far as the way I have, I have, tr have been trying to um, work within my costume design, it's um, color and texture and different things that you can really feel and see as, as far as I'm trying to meet trying to get away from the slickness of a particular costume and to get into some sort of texture with it. So with this particular costume, we have many different layers. Her bodice is appliqued and everything. It's many different layers of fabric on top of each other. And um, now this costume is distressed down, but it really looks more of like what it, we really wanted to look like the first day when we went to the theater. And... Um, how much of this was on a sketch before it came into a costume? The, from the top up was on a sketch. Mm -hmm. We just um, got rid of the skirts and added bloomers because we felt it was more realistic and it's also sexier. And was that done on the on the performer or when it was done? It was done on the performer. Mm -hmm. Can we see her standing up? Is that bustle or is that you? That's, that's, my, that's old mic pack. That's, that's where the mic pack goes in the show. Tell, explain me, explain to us what that is at my pad. Um, it's her mic pack. I see. Her microphone? Her microphone. Yeah, right. Yes. I see. We, um, on stage, everyone has a mic pack, and we had tried to figure out various places to conceal them. And <laughs> being that this is bone to conform to her body. And, um, through is this new in, in, in uh, what we do? Is this, well, this I, new, this mic pack? Let me explain a little bit with that, <laughs> not that I'm in sound, but uh, in most musicals nowadays, uh, with all the amplification that's in uh, orchestra pits, uh, the voices of almost all performers are mic have microphones, and a, a very tiny microphone is hidden somewhere, either in the hair or on a lapel or in a costume somewhere, but it's not seen by the audience. But it has to be, the signal from the microphone has to be sent to a transmitter, and the transmitter sends a, a radio signal to a receiver somewhere else in the theater so that that very small sound can be amplified. And each <coughs> performer wears a metal package that contains batteries, <laughs> and a radio transmitter, and that's what, that's what's that's very in the costume. <laughs> no, it is. What it's do you a, have to do with it? Dude? Is it easy to work it, or it's do you have? That. It's just it's right back here, and the wire goes up my back, up my neck, and into underneath my waist. It's not constraining in your no. work. Mm -hmm. Okay. And because the corset is all bone, because it's a true corset and mm -hmm. it's laced up the back, um, and throughout the course when the ladies wear them, when you take them off, you'll see a little a silhouette of their body. <laughs> so from the mic being back here, we have also a silhouette of the mic mm -hmm. also. Mm -hmm. It's awfully pretty. Brenda, could you. You, could you show us the, the, the shawl too? Yeah. That's part of the costume, right? Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful, oh, goodness. Actually, Brenda's is special because she is too tight, Nora, but what we did with these particular set of costumes, um, because we wanted something 
from the period on the costume, or at least I did, is we found the source with a large number of piano shawls. Yes. We cut the piano shawls in half. We used half of them as shawls, and the other half we used as the bodices and the corsets. Oh, yeah, yeah. As soon as you see this, you think of the piano. <laughs> in that whole period. It's very good. Thank you. Thank you. Jules, you uh, designed the, the lighting for Jelly's Last Jam and then also the lighting for two Shakespearean actors. Uh, how, did those two shows present rather different challenges since two Shakespearean actors is not a musical? Totally. Uh, two Shakespearean actors had, I mean, the challenges were diametrically opposed. Uh, two Shakespearean actors is a play that takes place primarily in and around uh, theaters, two competing theaters, two actors who are competing uh, in uh, late, just before the turn of the century. And uh, the same basic set designed by David Jenkins, which was a wooden structure made of uh, beams found in old barns upstate New York, were put together into the shape of a theater on stage and had to, had to serve as dressing room, uh, the two separate theaters, exteriors, uh, parlors, garrets, all different, different places that mm -hmm. the play took place. And the lighting had to be, had to, had to come down, beams of light had to come through these wooden beams that were the structure on the stage. And the problem was to make it subtle and that you wouldn't notice that you're going from one place to the other by changes of light because the scenery didn't physically change to do this. I mean, a lamp would come down or a clock would be pushed on stage or a table and a chair. But uh, very few elements were made, uh, changes were made to show you the different places in the theater. Uh, the fun of it was to design lighting that was subtle and not noticed. And uh, I was saying earlier as we were talking that very often lighting uh, attracts attention because it is showy. It's colorful and it's moving and, it, and often very glitzy, it, particularly in Broadway shows nowadays where the public is accustomed to seeing a lot of production. Here was a production that was very simple and uh, the lighting moved very slowly and subtly. The other task was to make it feel period from a standpoint of the light source. It was a period when electricity was not yet used in the theater, and uh, I tried to make it appear as if all the light was coming from uh, flickering uh, gas lamps and uh, natural candle flames. And what we did was to all the little fixtures that were on the stage, there were little gas lamps mounted, like you know, three three-pronged fixtures with little hurricane lamps. They were all built with multiple light filaments so that the, the light could be flickering all the time. And then because nowadays uh, theatrical lighting is controlled by electronic equipment, electronic computers actually, uh, the stage lighting could be built to fluctuate in the same rhythm that the little candles were. So we had a lot of scenes that would take place by candlelight and the stage lighting would actually have a little tremor to it to make you feel as if you were watching it by a, a moving flame. An electronic recreation Do you work with the director in, in, in doing that? Who uh, do you this work was Jack O'Brien. Incidentally, it was Jack O'Brien who agreed with this concept of let's try this electronic control of the light. So it did seem... But for me, there was an extra bonus, and which Jack O'Brien wanted, was that the light would have a sense of breathing. So it, is, it wasn't static. Even though a scene would have a single <coughs> shaft of light or multiple shafts, that would light the scene, the fact that the light had a little motion to it seems to make it breathe. 
And I think that gives the much more uh, sense of life. And I, I would like to be able to do that more often in contemporary plays, mm. that the light is constantly shifting as if it's, like it's music, so it just has a little, you don't get used to it, it isn't static. Do you, did you feel that footlights were static? No, uh, quite the opposite. In, the, in, in, in that show, too, uh, I think footlights gave an excitement to theater mm -hmm. in the turn of the century. It was noticeable, and it was very yes. good. And warm and, and very flattering to people it's because of its underlighting. Why did you go away completely? Is it not compatible with computerized lighting? You, why does the theater not use that, footlights? No, I didn't yes. mean you. I'm sorry. I, I'm willing to use them if it's apt for the play. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is also an unnatural source. Light, we, most uh, conditions of lighting in, the, in life are from the sun, which is above our eye level. It's usually thought of as above. Or it's the, from the sky, uh, slightly blue filtered light. Or it's reflected from walls. But uh, relatively unnatural sources to have it below you. Even and, though it closed up. Uh -huh. even though, I mean, other than having candles that might be below you. Also, we associate uh, a, a light that comes from a low angle with horror films and uh, terror uh, because it casts strange shadows. Now, footlights, because there were multiple, you know, multiple source of light, did cast shadows which would be higher than the actor, and that's sometimes distracting. If you have lights below and, and on the wall behind you see moving lights mm -hmm. caused by the shadows of the motion in the footlights, uh, it's a little distracting. So I think as the as theater developed better light positions, built-in uh, troughs in the ceiling, side lighting in, in boxes in the theater, uh, they abandoned the footlights. But it is a flattering source. Yeah. How did the working in this um, non-musical play uh, differ in its challenges from, from doing Jelly's Last Jam? Uh, as I was talking about earlier about the subtlety and very slow and gentle m uh, movement of light, in Jelly's Last Jam, uh, we had a, a, a wonderful opportunity to work with a director who's also the author. That doesn't happen mm -hmm. very often. Mm -hmm. And uh, George Wolfe is brilliant. And throughout the script, it was a thrill to read it because he referred to light almost as a character in the play. Uh, he would, he, this number, the play begins with a paragraph about light <coughs> and ends with a paragraph about light or a sentence or two mm -hmm. in which he referred to uh, a figure, a, a personage in... Uh, uh, that would the chimney man that comes from another world and this other world was darkness so his his brief to us as uh, at least to me as a designer was that the entire stage was darkness to begin with and that we would only bring light into it as jelly would perceive light that the netherworld controlled by uh, uh, the chimney man was darkness or the absence of light so I was had a chance to work on a, a musical in which light was a, a central figure. A character, yeah. In, in the piece. How, how much cooperation did uh, you and Tony get a chance to carry out? I mean, obviously, your lighting very much influences the effect of her costumes. Did you confer frequently? Did you uh, check on what your light was doing to the color values, for instance, of a it costume like that? It was good like for that? me because um, once, by the time we got to the theater, you know, Jules is working, so I was able to see how his light was evolving as far as the relation to the costumes, because the costumes are done, well, 
sort of kind of done <laughs> once you get into the theater so and so during that process when everything was in the theater that was the time when Jules came in and had started working and working and also um, because George is so meticulous about everything visually and especially lights I think George is more particular <laughs> about life as um, as incredibly phenomenal um, the man is just gifted, but he's more precise about lights than he is about anything else because he realizes how much, you know, you see visually as far as the set and the costumes are concerned are controlled by the lights. And as Jules says, he has those specifics written into the script. So I was able to watch um, the way Jules was evolving the lights. And any time I was frightened, I'd say, Jules, it scared me. But most of the time. <laughs> but, but also, we had a collaboration, in, in, in a very good one, in that we were able to meet with a scenic designer. For we days. were all there we for, for a long time. And you sent me, which is common, but you sent me uh, uh, swatches of fabric or little, mm -hmm. uh, on each of the drawings so I could see that if this scene was primarily costumes of that color, that when we went to light it, we would try to balance it towards those tones. Which was, your, sorry, which was your favorite production to light? Uh. Do you have one? <laughs> I, I probably don't, but I, I did hair, and uh, yeah, it was yeah. wonderful, and it was a great experience. I, I so thought that was I'm not good. sure it was the most the favorite production, but it was one of the best experiences I ever had, only because I got a chance, or one of the reasons was, I had a chance to see it done all over the world, and appreciate it everywhere yeah. in the world in any language <coughs> and I was very much younger when I did it so I, I literally got to many countries that I'd mm -hmm. never gotten to so it has a very special place for right. me that's a phenomenal time yeah. too uh, we have actually two directors here. You, you've been talking about your brilliant director I and how you interact doing with him. This. <laughs> and, uh, it's very nice uh, to hear designers yes, speaking. Uh, Ralph, Ralph Lee is, among other things, the director as well as the designer for uh, the puppets for the Meadowy River Company. And Michael Greif, uh, of course, directed Pericles, among many other plays. Um, how do you uh, interact with your designers? Uh, do you have final control? Do you come to them with a, with a concept, a directorial concept that dictates design concept? And Ralph, you are your own designer, and Casey works with you as a designer, so maybe after that you can comment on how you do that. Well, I, I think the mm -hmm. process is very fluid, I mean, and, and it changes from project to project, and um, the personal dynamics between the director and the designer will always inform that relationship as well. Um, I think it's healthy for a director to know what it is he wants to express with a project mm. and be able to speak to uh, his creative team, his or her creative team, uh, with some plan, you know, with uh, knowing where the journey is going to, to end. You never really know. It's always discovery. Things change. So I think it's really healthy to begin with a, a good idea, or at least what you hope is a good idea then, and be able to express those things clearly. And then I know that I always look for designers who have better ideas than me and come back and say, <laughs> well, that's good, but this is better. And I, I think that's how the collaboration works best for me. Did, did you bring to the production initially the concept of a chronological change during the course of the, of the five acts. I mean, you, you start off with John Gower uh, sort of emerging from the grave in a winding sheet, and he, he lived a couple of hundred years before Shakespeare. And by the time we're finished, 
you, you have us in um, a very contemporary setting, and John Gower is wearing, I don't know, a tuxedo or something. I mean, he's wearing contemporary clothes. And the, 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 yes, the design seemed to evolve that way, yes. Yeah, I actually did go to John with that notion. Uh, we, we, we both... I think we John Arnaud, John not Arnaud. John Gower. No, no. John Gower came to me with everything. Um, you had a seance with John yeah. Gower. You try. You try anything. Yes. <laughs> I wish John could have been a little more helpful. Um, yeah, both John and I um, had about three or four months to sit with the text and read it and read it and read it. Um, and the thing that's remarkable about a Shakespearean text is clues emerge. I mean, the better detective you are, the more the play informs you. I mean, you'll find a word that's unfamiliar or even a word that is familiar, and then when you hunt down its, its many illusions, both contemporary illusions and illusions in the 17th century, you find that a word will, will, have a, a, will allude to a concept. I found in Pericles every third word alluded to some sort of contest, some sort of challenge some feat, some quest. And, and that had a lot to do with, uh, with how the design emerged. But I will say that very early on I said to John, I'm interested in time travel as well as geographic space travel. And so we both knew that that was, that we both began with that. John said to me very early on, you know, something remarkable about this play, as, as we talked about the character of each of these lands and places and self-discoveries that Pericles makes, is that he said, you almost go through the color spectrum. Uh, and of course, the play does go from dark to light, from death to rebirth, and from separation to reunion. And John was more, was actually, went a step further than that and said, it actually goes from red to orange to yellow to green to blue to indigo to violet to <coughs> full light, from darkness to all light. And that became really the way in which we began. I mean, knowing that we travel time and knowing that we travel from darkness to light became really the uh, parameters for the design. Well, then, where did the sandbox come from? The whole play, well, except when the sandbox turns into a pool and rain falls in it and a ship floats on it, uh, <clears throat> except for that, the whole play takes place in a large well, as I, as, sandbox. Yeah. Well, I, as I said, the, 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 the clues that you discover from reading the play over and over again, I found that there were myriad references to the elements, to fire and air and land and water in the play, that the elements were being evoked constantly. It was about um, the human form in response to these elements. And so we wanted to literalize these elements on stage. And the way in which we chose to depict land was sand. Uh, maybe because the, the actual places that are described, that, that are named in the text, are desert or beach. Yes. So it became <clears throat> sand for land. Yes, Pericles takes place sort of around the Mediterranean. I guess it's not clear quite how far in North Africa it goes, but we're in sort of... And a Greece, Turkey, uh, picture the Mediterranean. Um, yes, and, and also there's a lot of discussion as to uh, how the geography has changed, and so this place, which we now call Ephesus, was in fact not what Shakespeare was calling Ephesus at all. And yeah. At some point, you mm -hmm. have to become interpretive and say, this is exciting because this is the place where it's generally believed that life began, and that's probably the reason why the, the play is located oh. here. I mean, that's, that's the process that we... Went through. That's how we came to that decision. <clears throat> Ralph, how do you work with yourself, director Ralph Lee, <laughs> telling designer Ralph Lee what he wants, and, and 
Casey, how do you collaborate with that uh, <clears throat> well, directorial mode? Well, it seems like the main dialogue that we have um, is with the material we're working with. Um, and sometimes that's a kind of a, a mysterious uh, uh, source, um, a, a mysterious voice, and sometimes it's, it's fairly obvious. Um, but um, that's the, the main thing that we are informed by uh, when we're starting to put things together. Um, with this particular piece, it's based on uh, stories of the Cree trickster figure. And we were attracted to that material, first off, by uh, a wonderful book of poems that had been translated from the Cree uh, by Howard Norman, who eventually wrote our script for us. And um, in that particular uh, group of poems, we became aware of how um, these people, the, the Cree Indians, would um, they play around a lot with reality. Uh, one image that always stuck in my mind was that they would, um, they would was uh, an image of, of snow that was falling off a branch, and before it hit the ground, it turned into an owl that flew away. Um, and there's just something about those tr kind of transformations that would take place uh, in their minds, and uh, they would do a lot. They would play around with nature a lot. Uh, uh, I think uh, at one point, um, was it Wichikapache puts two moons in the sky, and all the villagers pretend that they don't even see it, you know, just because they're they're always at odds. With, they don't want to give them the satisfaction. That's right. They don't want to give yeah. them the and then they turn around. And they go, "Oh, wait a minute. There's only two. What happened to the third one?" Right. And he's so furious that he goes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> gets turned around. Yeah, uh -huh. and and so there's this constant kind of play there. Um, with with reality, and uh, so we we tried when we were building the the the, the, the various figures for this production to um, to make make use of that that kind of um, the way that things could come together out of nothing, or or out of or a bird could come out of a bunch of twigs, or or something like that. <clears throat> Would you yeah. like to uh, to show us how a bird can come out of a bunch of twigs? I'll uh, I'll I'll show you this this character this 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 crow who's a uh, he's sort of a sidekick of Wichikapache, yeah, and um, he's both um, his companion and his uh, 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 and an irritant to him, um, and and so. We made this puppet out of, of twigs, and and he could, you know, had some movement in his in his his head, tin head, and he could ah 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 ah, go walking, and then he could fly around <laughs> and move from branch to branch. Um, I can't do it half as well as the actor who uh, eventually became at one with this puppet, but. Uh, this was this was our, our crow figure in in the piece. Um, let's see, let me maybe I can just put that behind it. Um, one of the other figures we had was a um, was a well, 
One of the first things that Wichikapache does in, in this particular script was that he um, imagines wolves for the first time. I mean, there just hadn't been any wolves. Tricksters are creators. They, creators. they, make, yeah. they create things and they make trouble all kind of blended together. Yeah, once they've created things, they get bored with their creations and start um, making trouble with it. And we pondered a long time about how to make these wolves, for instance, because we didn't simply want, I don't know, to have a bunch of actors with wolf heads on just didn't seem um, quite... I don't know, it was, it was just not such an imaginative idea and it just didn't seem like it, it, it contained that sort of transformation uh, within it. And so we came up with this idea of having uh, the wolf uh, be existing like this and uh, the actors, needless to say, were, were totally visible. Um, and although their bodies had to kind of become wolf bodies and at the same time be the actors' bodies, and, and, and the actors needed to sort of focus their attention into the, uh, into the, uh, <laughs> uh, the head and the thoughts of the wolf there. And with the, between the head and, and working the tail, uh, which would communicate a lot, and the, uh, the, the wolves came alive. And, it also allowed the actors the freedom, and these characters, these wolves, the freedom of moving through space a lot, which obviously we wanted to have them do. And so they could cover a lot of territory. Sometimes they could be very low to the ground, and sometimes when they were loping along, they could be really quite high. Um, all of our, or the bulk of our performances are done outdoors, and so there are uh, considerable problems with sight lines and so forth, and so you want to be able to have things that can uh, use the space a lot. When when you say we, mm -hmm. we solved the problem. We worked it out. Mm. Um, Ralph Lee and Casey Compton working together is that, that's right. That's the, mm -hmm. yeah, that's yeah. the we. Um, and sometimes you, it includes the actors as well. Uh, right. Uh, um, you did that mask, Casey did the costume, or is that too simplistic? You somehow did it all together? Well, actually, or? I think Casey came up with this notion. I mean, I was uh, happy to have uh, actors howling like wolves, but she came, she said, it's <laughs> she not said good no. enough. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> Go do something else. And uh, so we scratched our heads and, and, and went, went further with it. We, uh, have a standard question on our seminars is where did you come from where did you, to get where you are now and I'd like to go around with that and I'd like to ask uh, Tony did you study did you uh, where did you come out of um, I'm from a small town outside of Pittsburgh called Clarendon Pennsylvania and I attended the Ohio State University mm -hmm. and I received a BFA in theater design in 1979 and immediately a month after I graduated moved to New York and um, it was my dream like I'd make enough money and go to NYU and get a graduate degree and assist um, for a number of years and basically um, do what I'm doing now um, but it didn't work out that way because I moved to New York and oh you need money to live in New York so <laughs> I, um, I worked and um, I, I worked at the Village Gate, which was my first job here. At the theater? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the Village Gate. Oh, one More Time had just opened, mm -hmm. and I was an usher, and it was just wonderful. And a professor of mine, um, a lighting designer named Toshiro Ogawa, 
got me a position as um, an assistant wardrobe um, supervisor for Dance Theater of Harlem. And then I lasted there a year. I tempted. I know how to type because my mother said, if you're going into theater, learn how to type, <laughs> which I did. And I typed very well. Either that or wait <laughs> Exactly. So I learned how to type. So when I wasn't doing that, and I did my first design job, and I still had the photo. I actually looked at the photographs yesterday. was at the gallery players. Um, of course, for free, but it was the first thing I designed in New York was at the Gallery Players of Brooklyn, an Agatha Christie thing called The Hollow, and I thought they were some, and I look at them today and I think they're fabulous guys, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's in 1983. So I basically went back and forth since I really didn't know anything and I had always been um, taught under the mindset that, well, you have to know this person, you have to go to this certain school, and you have to do these certain things, A, B, C, D, before you do things. So, you know, I was really didn't know anything, so I did things that way. I did summer stock, and after summer stock, I came back, and I was a receptionist in an interior design firm, which was one of the most fantastic jobs I ever had because I learned all about color there. Mm -hmm. Because, um, because I had a theatrical background and a fabulous boss. It was an all-woman design firm <laughs> called Office Planning. And um, she allowed me to do um, um, color, mm -hmm. color presentations. So I started doing all the color presentations in the design firm. And I really learned a lot about color. I left there, went to the Ailey Company, which was my graduate school. Alvin Ailey. Um, Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater as their costume supervisor. And I learned all about construction of costumes and how costumes moved on So that you learned dancing. after school, that you learned pretty much on the job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I learned that all there. And um, as far as the breakthrough in design is concerned, um, um, when I, every time I threatened to leave, Alvin would say, well, don't leave, honey, because you can design this ballet. So basically, I got to design ballet, because every time I said, I don't want to do this wardrobe anymore, um, he'd say, well, you can design this ballet. And when I finally did leave, he supplied me with a job that supported me for all of 1987, which was the recreation of the 14 ballets by Catherine Dunham because her husband had just died and that was a learning experience because John Pratt was an incredible incredible costume designer and all the things about texture and layering things and the type of um, fabric collages I learned that from Dunham costume because this I Can like we talk all of about this from Dunham costume. what do you do in this costume um, well, it's a scene, as Tony said, the Buddy Bolden um, what scene. Is Buddy, but is Buddy, Buddy Bolden, Bolden mm -hmm. is one of the characters that had a very big impression on Jelly Roll Morton mm -hmm. as he was growing up. And um, I, as she said, I'm too tight Nora, <laughs> who is, um, I guess, the head hoe of this. <laughs> yeah. This, right, so needless to say. <laughs> what does Too Tight Nora do on stage? She's just very sexy, and she just kind of undulates and teases, and, uh -huh. and that's it. How do you get into that costume? Is there, does a dresser have to get you into oh, it? Oh, definitely, yes. What does a dresser do? She, well, I kind of hold it together, and she <laughs> zips it up. <laughs> and, uh, Show me. <laughs> well, she, there's a zipper that comes down the front. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I don't want to pull it too far down. <laughs> but there's a zipper here, and I have to... Pull it together and see. Mm -hmm. How many dresses are there in the show? Does a, does a costume designer decide 
on what is needed as far as dressers go? Uh, we tell the general management what is needed and hope that they will provide us. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that's all a general management decision. But we tell them basically, you know, this is how much we need and please can we have these many people. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as jelly is concerned, we started small and then we sort of grew, 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 grew. <laughs> so we have a um, supervisor and ten dressers. Yes. We have a dresser. How many? Yes. <laughs> that's Carol, my dresser. Ten dressers? Yes. Do you want to stand up for a minute so we can see you? <laughs> that's Carol. That's Carol. Carol, diva dresser. Yes. <laughs> diva dresser. <laughs> and what is Carol? So she can't come up. How, what does she do on stage? She stands she, by. And she helps me with all my quick changes, reminds me to put jewelry on, take hats off, and she's fabulous. Okay. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Jules, how does one get to be a, a lighting expert? Or not even expert, how does one get to light a show? Uh, is there a school? There are, there, now there are schools all over the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, most universities that have theater programs also teach theatrical stage lighting. Uh, I went to Carnegie Institute of Technology, which is now called Carnegie Mellon, mm-hmm. uh, for an undergraduate degree and simultaneously worked in summer theaters. I worked in uh, nine summer theaters in a row for nine years. I worked in summer stock and <laughs> found that a great experience. Uh, but uh, in my last year at school, I came to New York to design the lighting of a play that a graduate student, someone who had already graduated from Carnegie, who was in New York, called me and said, look, I'm doing this play in New York. It was All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren, and said, would you do it? Even though I was still a student, the school gave me permission to leave and come to New York, and I did this off-Broadway play, and went back to school to, this was my next to last year at school, and uh, when I went back, a few months later, I got another phone call from the designer uh, who had done the play. Who was the designer? The designer was Gary Smith, who is now Mm -hmm. a very well-known television producer and director of uh, Smith Hemian Productions in California. And Gary called and said, I'm doing an, another show. Uh, it was called uh, uh, Parade, uh, which was written and directed by Jerry Herman. A little off-Broadway show. That was off-Broadway? Off-Broadway at the Providence. About what year was it? Uh, that was 1959. 1959, or in, the, in 1960, mm-hmm. that season. Mm-hmm. An off-Broadway play by Jerry Herman, who was not very well known. And uh, <laughs> uh, I then went back to school. And again, the designer from that show called me and said, would you come back to New York? So I ended up doing three plays, three shows in New York, off-Broadway, before I graduated. So then when I came to New York, I already knew a lot of people. And uh, came to New York and just kept working ever since. I did 135 off-Broadway plays before I did a show on Broadway. (laughs) Gene? Did you you do off-Broadway as well as Broadway? Or was City Center considered off-Broadway? No. no, no, I never did off Broadway. Mm-hmm. Just went straight to Broadway. First class. <laughs> <laughs> Took the big jump yeah. right away. <laughs> no, well, you see, I was working with John Golden, who was Broadway producer, and I learned everything there. So naturally, that's all I knew, and so I did it. <laughs> that opportunity, unfortunately, isn't available to yes. people now. There's everybody has to be specialized. Michael Drive, tell us about your fabulous education at Northwestern University. I had a fabulous education. <laughs> um, I actually grew up here. I grew up in Brighton Beach in Brooklyn. 
but I, in an attempt to get far away, I, I went to Northwestern University in Chicago. Um, we were talking earlier because uh, Tish is a friend of Frank Alati's. Uh, actually, can I say this? We went to high school together. This? Yes, it's all right. <laughs> we, we appeared together in plays in high school. Uh, and Frank Alati was uh, a director. Mm-hmm. I was an actor for a time in college. He was my director, and he was also my teacher. And so we shared that person in common. I actually was in the performance studies, what's now called the performance studies department. Then it was called the Department of Oral Interpretation, which sounds like sitting around, <laughs> but sitting around and reading books aloud, which is actually what we did. But it was a wonderful program uh, because it really taught you how to um, see material for its dramatic possibilities. We would adapt a lot of non-dramatic material for performance. And I think that it really was director education because it taught you how to look at material and shape it and present it. And, uh, and it was also very helpful being a performer for a while. I think that's been very important to my work as a director, being able to talk to actors. Frank Galati won the, the uh, two Tony Awards uh, several years ago for both directing and doing the stage adaptation of The Grapes of Wrath. Oh. So this is the sort of thing that his uh, education in, involved adapting classes. Yeah, we did. I, I mean, I, I remember when I had just finished Northwestern and came to New York and Nicholas Nickleby was a great phenomenon. And it was very much like the work we had been doing for four years, and I was very thrilled to see that there was actually interest in work such as this. Um, so it's wonderful to be able to have great sources uh, for material. Um, I came back to New York for a couple of months. I worked as an assistant director to Jack Hofsis on a play called Poor Little Lambs, which actually I never mentioned, so I do <laughs> Now you have. But we I, all know. Uh, and then I went to study in San Diego. I went to study with Alan Schneider because I had been a great Beckett fan in college and was very interested in Alan's work with Beckett and with other seminal American playwrights. And I was actually Alan's student for two years and was his assistant director on a couple of projects, including... Um, uh, other places at the Manhattan Theatre Club, which was Pinter's three short plays by Pinter. Um, and then Alan went to London and was in uh, a freak motorcycle accident. He was crossing the street and was hit by a motorcycle. Um, uh, while I was in San Diego, Des Makinoff was an important influence on me. He had just begun the La Jolla Playhouse, and I was Des's assistant for four years. I assisted him on Big River originally at ART and in La Jolla. And I was very lucky because I, I inherited it, and it, it was my meal ticket for many years. Mm. I, I directed a national tour of it, the bus and truck, actually. And then I directed it in uh, Japan and Australia. And this was great because I was able to put my own work up in various small venues in New York and feed myself. It was mm. a great, yeah. great blessing. Jean, why you add something to that? I, uh, I skipped something. I began in vaudeville. And oh, that was I, real off uh-huh. off <laughs> There was something before yeah. Broadway. <laughs> yes, there it certainly was. I, uh, I not only produced for Broadway, I wrote and directed for Broadway. I had three one-act plays on Broadway before I was 25. One of them starred myself, of course. <laughs> and the other two starred Archibald Leach, who became Cary Grant, and the other one starred Jimmy Cagney. Oh, my. Oh, that's how I began. I, wonder. I think Jimmy has done almost everything in the theater. 
I don't know whether she's ever stitched a costume together. But yes, I did. Oh, I knew I would. We have nothing she hasn't done. I made all the costumes for one vaudeville um, act that I did called uh, um, In the Park. And it had uh, two girls in it. And I never could find the kind of clothes I wanted for them. So I made them. <laughs> I can't wait to get to you up. Yes, well, let, let's, Casey, how did, how did you get involved in theater and then around? Well, I had a wonderful teacher when I was a little shy teenager who turned me on to it. And, um, and I went to a boarding school which had the very quaint custom, which I'm sure they no longer do, of um, doing all-girl Shakespeare productions. <laughs> and I got to be the costume mistress for those and kind of pull things out and potchkey things together and it was really fun. It was really great. I mean, it was great for everybody. We did Macbeth. <laughs> and uh, I went to Bennington College, which costs a lot but doesn't have a lot in the way of facilities. At least then it didn't. And uh, that also was fun. Um, I think it may be some of that beginning that uh, has made our work together kind of defined the rest of this, which is that you just scramble and layer things, but you're also, for us, it's um, with very little money and very little to grab. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, coping, coping is a, a, a big ingredient. Um, uh, Ralph came to teach at my college my the spring of my senior year, and he did his first outdoor extravaganza with uh, a whole bunch of big puppets and a lot of actors running around and it was it was a very magical experience and uh, that kind of set things up Ralph also was doing his first Halloween parade the following fall of 74 and I was involved with that when I first came to New York and um, some of my fellow Bennington graduates and I were forming uh, Metaway that same year so it all kind of fell into place, and we've been scrambling ever since. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Ralph, you have to not only tell us well, we how you... have time to get into one of those wonderful costumes. Oh, are you going to put one of the big ones on? Oh, I can. Oh, yeah. you should. You should. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Okay. You do that while I tell, while I tell I our audience that. that Ralph started the New York City Halloween Parade and for many years ran oh. it. That's why we have that wonderful parade. Uh, this character I'm going to put on is the character of... I can still be hurt when I'm inside this. <laughs> is the character of two moons, who's um, a very forceful female figure who uh, is a... She's kind of a counterbalance to Wichi Kapachi. Yeah. I can find my arms here. My hands... <clears throat> And she lives at a lake, which has a, a, an echo. Um, so that's why her name is Two Looms. Oh. Oh. At one point, she has to swim. Casey, you said, did you have one that's the bride that changes into an owl? 
Uh-huh. I'd love to see that. <laughs> okay, so this is Tulu. <laughs> I want to see it. <laughs> it's a small transformation. <laughs> yes. Now you're going to transform into... Um, finally, the, uh, the villagers present Wichicapache with uh, a bride. And needless to say, he's uh, very excited about this possibility. <laughs> Let's see. I don't have the bottom half of the costume here, but this gives you some sense of what it's about. <laughs> Turn around so I can see you. So, the bride um, is very um, uh, is is enticing Wichicapache mm-hmm. and getting him all excited, and then um, <clears throat> as they get more and more into a frenzy, um, finally the bride makes one final swoop around, and then. She transforms herself and appears oh, as an owl. Wow. And all the, uh, the villagers also turn into owls at this moment. <laughs> wow. And you begin to wonder whether you've been, uh, they've been owls all along, masquerading as human beings, or, or what they really were. But that's what happens with that. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I have a question I'm dying to ask Ralph and Casey. If you had the budget of Jelly's Last Jam, <laughs> you're a low-tech company using simple means, that's part of your philosophy, what would you do with a, a multi-million dollar budget? Would you like to tell us how much you spent on which Kapache goes walking? Um, well, More I think, owls, I imagine. <laughs> I think on the, the physical production, we spent about twelve hundred dollars. Um, uh, yeah, about twelve hundred dollars. The there, there are a lot of uh, twelve million, Michelle. Yeah. A lot of things we could get for free. No, twelve hundred. Hundred. One thousand two hundred dollars was their production budget. Um, the um, and and the, the sort of the all over budget for a season for us is around sixty five thousand, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a funds song. your touring. That's also. a tour. That that's funds everything. the actors and everything else. Yeah. And everything. And I think that if I had um, a larger budget, um, what I would, I wouldn't necessarily make these productions more complicated. I might have better lighting than we've got. <laughs> <laughs> I happen to, uh, to operate our, our little dimmer board, and I really appreciated what you were saying about the light breathing, because I find myself, I mean, there are 12 little dimmers, and I find myself sort of playing it like a console. <laughs> <laughs> I never set the cues at all. But I would have more sophisticated lighting, and I'd also like to um, extend our operations through the, through the year, perhaps have um, a, a real home base in New York City uh, where we could function out of during the wintertime. If you, Jules, as a producer, 
suddenly had to work on a much smaller budget. <laughs> you didn't produce Jelly's Last Jam, but you've produced a number of Broadway shows. Um, what, what would you do? Could you, could you and Tony put on a, a reasonable extravaganza with a much smaller budget? I think so. I, 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 we, uh, we spend, I think, uh, often far too much money on productions. Uh, a lot of it in, on Broadway is eaten up by uh, salaries to union members. I'm a union member, and we all have minimums, uh, salaries to be paid uh, either as designers, as craftspeople, as uh, laborers to put the show into the theater, the trucking union. The, the Broadway productions are very controlled by unions. Uh, it is a union shop on Broadway. And uh, the, just paying people their weekly salary uses most of the money. Mm. Uh, before you've built any costumes or rented any lighting equipment or built any scenery, you've paid a lot of money to human beings, particularly since it's expensive to live in New York. And overhead for the shops. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that, that you need money to be creative. So if, if I, I personally enjoy the challenge of a smaller budget sometimes. If someone will say to me, here's how much you have, can you do the show? I'm, I'm happy to say yes. Uh, I, I don't think it's... I don't, th I don't think you need money to make it wonderful. You may need money to accomplish something. To physically, if you have to make 50 costumes and they're made in a union shop, they're going to cost something. But I don't think the money is a... I, I, don't, think, I don't think more money would make these costumes any more I'm, beautiful. I'm so Thank sorry. That it's, it's, again, we could go on and on, and perhaps it, we can arrange for another time to keep going on. There is so much that people like you have to say, not only to me, but to our audience and the people who care what goes on into the theater and what it is to know what working in the theater really is. This is the American Theater Wing's seminar on working in the theater, and it's coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, which is located in the heart of Times Square. It is one of the programs of the Wing. We have Saturday Theater for Children program. We have Introduction to Broadway program. Each one of the titles speak for themselves. Saturday Theater for Children are the youngsters that go to the theater on Saturday mornings in their own schools. And Introduction to Broadway is a program that is in conjunction with the Broadway producers and the Board of Education and the American Theater Wing, in which young high school students pay a minimum price to go to see a Broadway show. It'll be then extended, I hope, to off-Broadway as well. Today's seminar is on design, and it is the wonderful, wonderful winners of the 1992 American Theatre Wing Design Awards, which carries a stipend with it, a very small one, but it means a great deal. And it is given to Broadway, off-Broadway, and off-off-Broadway representatives as well. And so here we've listened to all the people that make the theatre come alive for you, the people that are able to bring up the lights and create the costumes and the magic and the sets and the special effects that say, this is theater, live theater, that nothing else can give you. Nothing else is enriching as, or magical as this. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theater Wing, and I thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Tish Dates, and thank you, Jean Dalrymple, for co-chairing this.
Sit 